Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 89, November 28th to December 4th, 1862. Last week, we talked about the court-martial of Fitzjohn Porter, John Pope lashing out at his scapegoat one last time. We also introduced Herman Hopp and talked about Clara Barton. This week, we will talk about action in Tennessee, as well as Arkansas, kicking off the Stones River campaign, and also setting up for the Battle of Prairie Grove. Before we do that, though, I do want to mention we have Patreon content. The November Patreon content was a memoir review, Hardtack and Coffee, and... It's come to my attention that it's interesting. I should have selected that uh, memoir that is about soldiers' life, mostly including food and eating and coffee uh, in the same month as Thanksgiving. So I think unintentionally it was a very nice choice for that month. Uh, Coming up here in December, we will have a movie review and it will be Gods and Generals and... I'm having a hard time trying to figure out how to do it. It's a very long movie. I'm not doing the director's cut, which is even longer. Uh, So maybe that will be down the road, perhaps. But just be doing the regular runtime. And I'll probably be breaking it up into two parts. And I'm going to do something a little bit different, I think, in that I'll be doing it live, watching the movie. So I'll be able to comment in real time as opposed to take some notes here. So I'll probably be a two-parter, but stay tuned for that here as we get into December. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, talking about the movie Gods and Generals and reviewing it, then the link to the Patreon is in the show description. And of course, the proceeds do go to the general upkeep of the show, and it's greatly appreciated. We need to start this week by discussing the kickoff of the first campaign by the Federal Army for Vicksburg. Way back after New Orleans fell, Farragut had tried to take the Mississippi River, Lynchpin City. Now, Grant comes up with a plan to make an attempt on Vicksburg in late 1862. Now, this is not the Vicksburg campaign that seals the fate of the Confederacy, or at least that is what the usual narrative says. It may surprise you to know Grant attempts to make a move on Vicksburg, but fails the first time, and it may also not be the only thing that surprises you about these campaigns. In fact, Grant is actually going to try many times and have many different attempts to get at Vicksburg And there's a lot of trial and error and failure involved in these movements by the Army and and the Navy. So it is a very long tale that finally culminates in the Vicksburg campaign that we know uh, in 1863. For this first campaign, the plan was fairly simple. Grant had three corps commanders, Sherman, McPherson, and John McClernand. 
Grant would divide his forces, keeping the Confederates occupied, with Sherman heading down from the northeast along the Yazoo River. This original attempt is not going to be successful for a variety of factors that we will discuss, but Grant is not going to be deterred, and he'll try again. For our purposes here today, we should take note that the Yazoo River is one of the avenues that are laid out for getting at Vicksburg, and hopefully I'll be able to post a map to the website, and that way you can see that, but just keep that in the back of your mind that the Yazoo River is going to play a role into some of these failed campaigns, and then the final campaign as well. Now, we do need to briefly talk about what the situation is on both sides prior to delving in. John C. Pemberton would be the Confederate commander, if you remember him from our talk about Secessionville outside of Charleston. Here's the problem with Pemberton. He has not commanded troops in the field. It is well documented that while Pemberton may not have been a bad organizer, he was not a good field commander, and definitely not who was needed to defend the vital city of Vicksburg. Despite his command deficiencies, Pemberton was not at a numerical disadvantage. He was actually on relatively even footing with the Federals, each army at around 43,000 men, give or take. Now, sometimes the Federals do have a numerical advantage, but it's not too far off in terms of the odds for the Confederates. Some of you might think that that's sort of surprising. A more aggressive and capable commander could have made an impact. There's an opportunity for that particular commander to be one Joseph Johnson, but the defensive-minded Johnson would stay in southern Mississippi and not roll out any kind of spoiling attacks on Grant. So the Federals had a definite advantage in terms of leadership as well as naval superiority. But not everything was hunky-dory for Grant. There was one major thorn in the side of his army, and his name was John McClernand. Now, we alluded to the Illinois politician being a problem not only for Ulysses, but also for his superior Henry Halleck. McClernand was using his political influence to effectively raise an army of new recruits from the western states. His plan was also fairly simple. It was to steal the thunder from Halleck and Grant. In a weird way, it was sort of advantageous to Grant that he was doing that because he posed a bigger threat to Halleck. He talked too much and had too many aspirations that would potentially be harmful for the career of old brains. So, Halleck would side with Grant and his attempts to rein in the free-spirited McClernand. William T. Sherman would take over troops slated for McClernand and move them in the first Vicksburg campaign, advancing to Chickasaw Bayou, which we will talk about before the year is out. McClernand was delayed and would not be able to take command of these troops, but unfortunately, after Chickasaw Bayou, he would move south to finally take command. Unfortunately for the army, McClernand was actually superior to Sherman and McPherson, the two other corps commanders. Things would not necessarily be looking too bright for Grant in late 1862 and early 1863 
with his plan stymied, Sherman defeated, and McLernan victorious, it would be time to act quickly or risk the upstart moving on Vicksburg. We will get there in due time, but I wanted to at least start setting the stage for one of the war's most important campaigns. For now, we can be satisfied that Grant will be demonstrating by moving down from northern Mississippi toward Oxford, and not because he wanted to catch an Ole Miss football game, that is for sure. Sherman was taking an amphibious route, leading him to Chickasaw Bayou, a little north of the city of Vicksburg. We will see how that one pans out in a few weeks. On December 7th, we have the Battle of Hartsville, Tennessee, which kicks off the Stones River Campaign, that battle being fought at the latter part of the month. If you recall, William S. Rosecrans had taken over as commander of the now-dubbed Army of the Cumberland from Don Carlos Buell, who is replaced after his failure to crush Bragg at Perryville, allowing his opponent to slip away back into Tennessee and set up shop at the junction of Murfreesboro. Rosecrans wanted to go on the offensive against Bragg, probably understanding what happens when you do not take the initiative. In December of 1862, Bragg would attempt to slow down his enemy by sending John Hunt Morgan on a raid toward a crossing of the Cumberland River at a place called Hartsville. Hartsville actually sits a little north and east of Nashville. It was here that sat a brigade of troops under Absalom Moore. These were of the green variety, though, not having seen combat yet. Thus, it made them a good target to strike. Morgan would ride out with his trusty lieutenant Basil Duke, four cavalry regiments, and two infantry regiments. Conditions, though, were less than ideal. There was bitter cold and reports of snow on the ground. Morgan would use trickery, reportedly to approach the Union camp. Some of his men perhaps wore blue uniforms, so they were able to capture any advance guard. Still, I have seen two different narratives, one where Morgan surprises the camp itself, and one where his approach is alerted, the green troops ready to face him. In the first version, there is utter disorder, the Union troops not mounting a true defense. But in this battle, Morgan reportedly takes on 139 casualties, so there probably was an organized defense, like in the second version. The rookie regiments would break, when pressed by Morgan's veterans. Moore would surrender his troops to the Kentucky officer. Morgan's raid was a success. They had inflicted 58 battlefield casualties and captured over 1,000 men, maybe even closer to 2,000, some estimates say. His men were also able to capture key supplies at Hartsville, including shoes much needed during the winter months. After filling all that was possible on the spoils of war, Morgan's men were forced to withdraw, as Union reinforcements were converging on the area. To illustrate the harsh winter conditions, reportedly some of the wounded would freeze on the battlefield. I have seen it said that this is sort of the high watermark for John Hunt Morgan. He kind of falls off in terms of his combat effectiveness, and definitely sort of in the same way as Stuart is going to be seeking more in terms of notoriety. 
we're going to see very shortly here, early 1863. He's going to get married and be less occupied with the military affairs as he is with his new wife. And he's going to exceed his orders in terms of a raid as well. That's going to get him into a little bit of trouble. So we'll see that here next year. But for the time being, Hartsville is going to get him rewarded by none other than the Confederate president. This is something else we should talk about, that Jefferson Davis made a swing out into the Western theater. It is sort of baffling when you think about it that Davis probably saw firsthand the disparity in the West, and yet he would continue to put little emphasis on giving more resources there. I should say, at least by the time he does want to add in additional resources, it's almost too late. Did Lincoln travel west to inspect what was going on there? Not really, which isn't interesting given his emphasis on the Mississippi, and also his emphasis to pass legislation that would shape the American West. In the winter of 1862, Davis is going to have to skedaddle when Sherman begins his advance which will culminate in the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou. He is also in Tennessee after reports of this raid, pushing for Morgan to be promoted to the rank of Brigadier General. This week, I want to set up the strategic situation in Arkansas and Missouri that is going to lead into next week's episode. Next week, of course, we're going to fight the Battle of Prairie Grove. We have sort of been dancing around the details of this theater of the war, but I'm hoping to string everything together. So remember all the way back in March, we had the Battle of Pea Ridge. Following the Confederate defeat, Earl Van Dorn leads his men out of Arkansas to join the rest of the rebels in Mississippi. When he does that, he leaves Arkansas with very little in terms of troops to defend against Union incursions. If you remember, Samuel Curtis took full advantage of this until his supply lines became too far stretched. You will also recall that Thomas Hyman was named the commander of the department. Hyman's placement was a fantastic assignment for the Confederacy. We already introduced Hyman, but we failed to mention how committed he was to the Southern cause. Working with pretty much nothing, Heinemann was able to scrap together some 20,000 men and breathe new life into this region. Those who did not want to continue with Van Dorn from Price's command would move back into Heinemann's department, combine that with new recruits from Arkansas and Missouri, and this meant there was a sizable force to contend with the Union in a region that was considered relatively pacified. Guerrilla activity increased in Missouri. And there was the renewal of offensive action that we talked about when we mentioned the Battle of Newtonia not too long ago. Hyman did many good things, but his declaration of martial law rubbed many people the wrong way. So they appealed to Richmond for an alternative arrangement. Theophilus Holmes, if you remember, the deaf general from the Peninsula Campaign, would take over, working well with Hyman. Holmes would recall Heinemann, though, during his offensive move, which would prove to be a major error, leaving command of this new movement to a lesser officer. 
Because of this, the offensive would fizzle out. Now, we can switch and check out things from the Union side. Samuel Curtis had been given command of the Department of Missouri. John Schofield, if you remember, was the field commander, a little myth that Curtis had been placed over him. A new army was created, dubbed the Army of the Frontier, which included three divisions. One under the already mentioned, in a previous episode, James Blunt. One under Francis Heron, who, you recall, received the Medal of Honor at Pea Ridge, and a third under Army veteran James Totten. These troops would begin to counter the Confederate thrust, if you remember the action at Old Fort Wayne. That was James Blunt being detached to deal with Samuel Cooper and thwart an attempt to swing north and attack Fort Scott in Kansas. So the Federal forces would be back into Arkansas for a time, Hindman withdrawing into the Boston Mountains. For a time in the Trans-Mississippi, both sides would be content with setting out the winter. There were supply issues on both sides. Remember, we had already problems early in 1862. Now there was a little in terms of forage. Many of the Unionists in the region had fled, abandoning their farms. In fact, there was actually a cavalry unit in the Federal Army who was serving as scouts and anti-irregulars from the state. Hindman would sit around Fort Smith, James Blunt, and Francis Heron separated as well. Schofield was in St. Louis, as was the recalled James Totten. Reportedly, the Confederates were mostly in rags. Both sides were wary from hard marching, leading into the winter. While the troops are just sitting there, it should be noted that both the Confederacy and the Union are going to look to reallocate some of these troops to other theaters. Schofield's Army of the Frontier was slated to give troops in the effort to seize Vicksburg. Hyman's Army of the Trans-Mississippi was slated to give men in an effort to, of course, defend Vicksburg. Theophilus Holmes would argue against the taking of his men, which did shock Jefferson Davis. You see, he tried to shuffle the pieces on the board, but Holmes was not aware of the federal plans. Both sides would keep their armies where they were as a response to the other. Sort of odd considering that neither commanding force really wanted their troops to be there. We need to talk about a few things here that we can point out. The first is that Jefferson Davis does take an active part in shuffling men around, and probably more so than he should. You know, this is part of his big western swing, and we're going to see in 1863 this does have an effect on the campaigns, notably the Gettysburg campaign, of course, but we should also point out that this is kind of the strategy for Jefferson Davis, is that while they are at a numerical disadvantage, right? And it should also be noted, I think, too, that too much emphasis is put on the manpower advantage that the Federals have. There have been situations throughout military history where there have been greater odds that have succeeded against larger foes larger deficits. So it's not like 
he's fighting a losing battle here, but his strategy is to take men from these other regions and shift them so that he can at least be closer to parity with the Union armies. This is something that, among others, Robert E. Lee isn't going to necessarily like. Lee is really interested in offensive action, and even though he's fighting mostly defensive battles, he does want to have that offensive capability, and if he doesn't have enough troops to do that, then it is, of course, a problem in his eyes. We're also going to see here at the end of the month, actually, that Bragg is going to lose potential men. They're going to be headed toward Vicksburg, and that's going to affect the Battle of Stones River, and he definitely could have used those men if they hadn't been reallocated elsewhere. And it should be noted also that they were not necessary to defending Vicksburg this time around. So it is unfortunate for that battle for the Confederacy, but also makes the move toward Chickasaw Bayou that much more important by Sherman. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the episode. The other thing I do want to talk about, I want to point out that the personnel that the Confederacy has in these regions, they don't necessarily work the best together. Theophilus Holmes is not going to work very well with Pemberton, not going to work very well with Richard Taylor, who's going to be taking over in Louisiana. So there's not going to be a whole lot of concentrated effort to defend the various areas that are being pressured by the Union. The other interesting thing that I think we should also point out is that if you run down the roster of names of individuals, there are all these rejects from the East, right? We saw John Bankhead Magruder go to Texas. Theophilus Holmes doesn't perform well in the peninsula. He gets sent out to Arkansas. Even Pemberton, who has this weird rise through the ranks of the Confederate forces, gets sent out to Vicksburg because the individuals in Charleston don't like him. So it is sort of interesting when you're getting all these individuals that you really don't know where to put them and you're shoving them out into this western region. It's not going to end up well if all these individuals are lacking in terms of skill sets to lead armies and create victories, right? Especially if they're not going to have as much in terms of resources. So I think that's also something that is sometimes overlooked when we talk about these campaigns and these battles. And it is also interesting, I think, too, that there's always this emphasis on the East, the Eastern theater, what's happening in Virginia, right, with Robert E. Lee. But we really do see how this emphasis is placed on the East because of these officers being sent away that Lee's not going to like them. So if you can pardon a baseball analogy, they're sort of being sent down to the minors here, so to speak, uh, as opposed to remaining in prominent positions in the East. John Marmaduke would wish for offensive action. His cavalry would arrive at a place called Cane Hill in late November. Marmaduke was convinced he could strike at James Blunt. His Kansas division was isolated along the border. James Blunt, though, was not one for defensive action, as we already saw at Old Fort Wayne. He would move on Cane Hill, catching Marmaduke off guard. 
Joseph Shelby's brigade with cavalry was set up defensively to receive the oncoming Kansas troops. Interestingly, this included a contingent of Quantrill's raiders, who had come into Arkansas for the winter. Quantrill himself was not present, being in Richmond seeking a promotion. Under a different commander, his men would be held in reserve during the battle. Unfortunately for the Confederates, the Kansas Division would arrive in the direction more northerly than expected. Coming in at an awkward angle, toward the anchored end of the Confederate line, in a cemetery. Facing the pressure, Shelby's men were forced to retire after a brief artillery duel. Wanting to make sure his supply wagons were able to escape, Marmaduke set up defensively again, this time on high ground. Pursuing the enemy, the Kansas would set up once again. The superiority of Federal artillery was on display yet again, Union gunners pounding the high ground known as Reed's Mountain. After a sustained firefight, the Federals pushed the rebels from the hill. This was not enough for James Blunt, who mounted a pursuit, skirmishing with the rear guard of the Confederates. In this action, Blunt would personally lead a contingent of cavalry. Rebels would deploy to meet this threat and push back the enemy, effectively ending the Battle of Cane Hill. Both sides would suffer around 40 or so casualties, the Union claiming victory on the day, but still allowing Marmaduke to escape with his command intact. Confederate feelings toward the battle was that it had not gone great. Obviously, they didn't bag Blunt, but that was just a minor setback. We can make the connection that these Kansans, and James Blunt in particular, are not going to be well-liked by the Southern troops, so there's going to be a special emphasis in terms of defeating him or, or capturing him, right? We see the same emphasis with other abolitionist officers, right? We have Benjamin Butler down in New Orleans who's going to have a bounty on him, and we're going to see Robert Milroy in Virginia as well have a very similar bounty as well. So this is part of the course for the Confederates. Despite not going according to plan, there would be opportunity yet again by the Southerners as a result. This skirmish will be part of the lead-up to the Battle of Prairie Grove, which we will cover in detail next episode. We're going to stop there. This week, we talked about the beginning of the Vicksburg Campaign. Starting the Stones River or Murfreesboro Campaign, we have John Hunt Morgan raiding along the Cumberland at Hartsville. Finally, we have the Battle of Cane Hill in Arkansas, which will set up the Battle of Prairie Grove. Speaking of the Battle of Prairie Grove, next week we will fight that battle in its entirety. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.